Hey friends, we just had an incredible conversation with Shane Claiborne and Mike Martin of Raw Tools, my dear friend Kelly Knox, who recently decommissioned his AR-15 assault rifle, and Pastor Amy Kasari from Antioch Church in Bend, Oregon, about laying down our weapons in the wake of the Nashville school shooting. As you'll hear in the conversation, we're convicted that we're late to the game on this, and we're convinced that measurable change will occur when communities of Jesus followers transform our guns into guard tools. The live conversation was inspiring and it was invitational. And so we wanted to share it with you as a special bonus episode. And stay tuned as we're gearing up to relaunch the Everyday Peacemaking podcast with a fresh format in the very near future. I think you're gonna love it. In the meantime, here's our conversation from April 3rd, laying down our weapons, how Christians can move the needle on gun violence. Tonight's conversation is, is really in honor and memory of so many lives that have been prematurely extinguished by gun violence in America. And we remember tonight and we lament, and then we allow our lament to move us into merciful action as everyday peacemakers in ways that lead to the replacement and renovation of systems that are hurting people and the restoration of those who are being hurt. Now, we want to acknowledge tonight that this is one of many conversations and efforts happening around the country and the world right now around gun violence. We celebrate the many ways in which organizers and organizations, in particular those from those who are disproportionately impacted by gun violence, have been leading the way in this conversation for years. We want to confess that this is one of the initial conversations that Global Immersion has hosted. And the reason that we're hosting this conversation tonight is that many of those leaders are calling on Global Immersion to host conversations like these, to build movement, to grow and galvanize folks into the movement for change that actually saves lives. And so that's what we're doing this evening. Now, none of us on the panel tonight thinks exactly the same way about guns. And those of you who are listening in, I doubt that there are any two people who think exactly the same way about guns. What we hold in common on this panel is that we're fueled by our faith to be a part of fixing broken things, in particular, broken things that are killing people. And so my name is Jer Swigert. I'm the co-founder of Global Immersion. We're a peacemaking training organization that forms follower of Jesus to mend internal, interpersonal, and institutional divides. We believe that everyday peacemakers are folks who are constantly becoming more accurate in the way that they see. We're immersing courageously and with curiosity. We're contending in creative and collaborative ways. And ultimately, we're participating with God and others with the tools that are already in our hands in the work of repair. When we host live events like this, we really have three objectives. Number one is education. Fact of the matter is, my perspective is not 2020 vision. And so we need to expose ourselves to the things that we don't yet fully understand. Number two, transformation. Information is not the same thing as transformation. We have to become substantively different kinds of people if we're going to be a part of change in the world. And three, mobilization. We're not created to make change alone. We actually need to link arms with one another and take practical steps in the direction of repair. Framing tonight's conversation more specifically, while families in Nashville mourn, many of our hearts are filled with anguish. And maybe 
some of us on tonight's call feel, are feeling apathy. Like this thing just keeps on happening and, uh, and nothing seems to be changing. Our media sources are saturated with the same old tired tropes that are actually designed to hypnotize us into indifference. Now, this camel's back has been broken on this issue for quite some time, but something about this week helped me understand how personal the endemic of gun violence is becoming for many of us. My first exposure to gun violence was when I was 13 years old. I grew up in a, a sleepy little village in Midwestern Wisconsin. And when I was 13, I had two friends and they were on their way to play roller hockey together. And they stopped off at one of their houses because one of the, one of the dude's dads had just bought a new handgun and they wanted to admire it. So they sat there for a while and they were holding the gun and they were admiring this gun. And when it was time for them to leave, to get to the rink, one of my friends picked up the gun and held it to the face of one of my other friends. And he made a joke about how he's not ready to leave quite yet. And he pulled the trigger and it instantly killed our friend. And so at the age of 13, my hockey teammates and I were the pallbearers to our friend who died of gun violence in Midwestern Wisconsin. Fast forward the clock to August of this year, there was a attempted mass shooting at a grocery store in my hometown of Bend, Oregon, attempted mass shooting because of the shooter only successfully took two lives rather than the masses that he intended. When we read his manifesto, we learned that his goal was to stand out at the local high school, one of the local high schools, and, and kill kids as they were walking into the classroom on that first day. Fast forward the clock two months later, another one of our local high schools was shut down and our SWAT team was deployed and entered into the school, leaving a whole nother set of high schoolers traumatized by the reality of gun violence. Fast forward the clock two more months later, my neighborhood was shut down by police in the middle of the night. Drones literally filled the skies because an active shooter was walking up and down our streets, indiscriminately shooting into the air. Shortly after these three local events, I was in a conversation with a, a local friend who identifies as Christian, and I just wondered with him about his experience of all that was happening in our city. And he said three things to me that weren't entirely surprising. Number one, I just applied for my conceal and carry and was placed on a month's long waiting list. Lots of folks are, are applying for their conceal and carry. Number two, he said, my handgun is too large to conceal. I need a new and smaller one. And number three, because of the local events, all of the inventory in our city was out. There were no handguns or assault rifles to be purchased. That leads me to four framing thoughts for tonight's conversation. Number one, a primary response to gun violence in America even among many Christians, is more guns. Number two, no one expects Christians, especially white evangelicals, to work toward change. As a matter of fact, you step outside of the fishbowl of white American evangelicalism and you hear the critique that we, in fact, are the problem itself. Number three, if gun violence hasn't already directly impacted you, chances are it will soon. 
which leads me to number four. The reality is all of us have been directly impacted by gun violence. We're all making social agreements that allow this catastrophe to continue unchecked at high cost, especially to emerging generations they're suffering. And so that leads me to a question and maybe a confession for myself tonight. Why am I and why are so many who claim to follow a nonviolent, enemy-loving, cross-wearing God so late to the game on this issue? And then how and when and where do we begin? That's really the point of tonight's conversation. I'm thrilled about tonight's panel. It's a beautiful collision of worlds for me. Shane Claiborne from Red Letter Christians has been a friend and a conspirator in the, in the restorative revolution for over a decade. And many of us on the call, no doubt, have been impacted by his clarion call to creative love. Mike Martin, he's here to talk about our national fixation on guns, its incongruence with Jesus and what it's costing us. Mike Martin from Raw Tools is a dear friend who's taken Isaiah's vision of beating weapons into garden tools seriously, making it very practical and very contemporary. He's here to invite us as individuals and congregations to take some tangible actions that will lead to change. Kelly Knox is a longtime friend and brother who, among many other things, has given some of his best energy to walking with veterans who have been traumatized by violence and war. He's here to share his story of decommissioning his AR-15 assault rifle. And then Pastor Amy Kasari of Antioch in Bend is a sister and friend who leads with a wisdom and a compassion and a courage that is literally transforming our congregation here into an instrument of peace. She's here to invite us into her church's journey of becoming a gun decommissioning site in Central Oregon, of all places. So, so excited about this, friends, as questions come to mind, because I, I know that you have them. There's something that brought you into this conversation tonight, populated into the Q&A space so that we can address those uh, along the way. But without any further ado, I want to I bring Shane into the conversation. And Shane, you are so good at helping us understand our fixation on guns, its incongruence with Jesus and what it's costing us, but also pointing us to a hopeful alternative. So I want you to go there, but I wonder, I wonder if you just begin by telling us, when did you start to take this conversation seriously? Take, start, start us there, Shane. All right. Yeah. Thank you, buddy. And it's just wonderful to be a part of this important conversation. So, you know, I grew up in Tennessee, fell in love with Jesus and the Bible Belt. And, and I also began to have my worldview, my politics shaped by that Bible Belt culture where we very passionately, I called myself pro-life, but we had really narrowly defined that to one issue, really, to abortion, that I began to look at so many of these other issues like gun violence and see that we weren't nearly as passionate about some of the other issues of life and death. And I grew up with guns. I grew up hunting with my grandfather. Most of my family are still gun owners, but they're also gun owners that are concerned about gun violence. And we've had this ongoing conversation happening in our family. And I hope, you know, tonight is a part of shaping a better, more courageous conversation, nuanced, you know, not just kind of the cultural paralysis, but to really talk about how we can save some lives. And a lot of this for me too, Jerry, you know, is, is proximity makes all the difference in the world. Where we 
sit determines what we see. And when I moved to North Philadelphia and we began to see so many lives lost on our street corners, almost every one of our corners has memorials with names of those whose lives are lost. We've got the kind of collective memory when, you know, a three-year-old was shot on the front porch of Malta Street, when two people lost their lives from an AK-47 on 8th Street. I mean, even now, you know, our house has a hole in the front of it from a, a bullet. Our car has, you know, a dent in it from a bullet. Our, our My plum tree, for the love of everything, has a branch shot off by a stinking... So this is, this is real, but really for me, it was when a 19-year-old named Papito was shot right in front of my house and he was still alive. And I, I was there to hold his hand, to pray with him. The ambulance came. He was still fighting for every breath. And the next morning we found out that he had lost, he, he had died. And that was the moment for me where well, I remember those words of Dr. King when he said, we we're all called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe we need to do something about the whole road to Jericho. And it was right after Papito was killed, incidentally, that it was also the season of Lent, right before Easter. And so we took our services into the streets and we had the stations of the cross, you know, the remembering the violent death of Jesus and the women weeping at the foot of the cross. We did that on our corners, bring the lives lost here. We carried the young men in my neighborhood, carried the cross and we put it in front of the neighborhood gun shop, which was called the shooter shop. And it was not just any gun shop, but notoriously irresponsible landing, you know, hundreds of guns on, on the streets here in Philly. And I got to tell you, it was one of the most powerful services of my life. We read the gospel narrative of, you know, Jesus's death. And, and, and then we really felt moved by the spirit to invite the moms and dads who had lost their kids to, sh to share their own story of their passion, their, their suffering, their tears. And, and something just wholly happened. I, and I can remember it was, it was like the, the, the suffering of Jesus met the suffering of our neighborhood. And afterwards, this woman came up and she was shaking with emotion. And she said, I get it. I get it. And I said, what? And she said, God knows what it feels like to lose his son. And she said, God knows what it feels like to be me. And that's when I realized that that was Papito's mom, the mother of the 19-year-old. And it's one of the most powerful articulations, I think, of the Christian gospel that I've ever heard, better than anything I learned at Princeton Seminary. It was that sense that God is with us in our suffering, even to the point, as we remember this Holy Week, that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that kind of long loneliness, that agonizing pain that so many people feel right now. And, and so I'm convinced that not only is this a public health crisis, but it's also spiritual crisis in America. Part of why Mike and I wrote Beating Guns Together is because we began to discover how deeply our, I'm going to use a word, a religious word, idolatry of guns has begun to affect the church and our theology. Idols are things that we treat with sacredness and reverence. We attribute sort of a God-like quality to them. Idols are things that we're willing to 
die for and kill for and sacrifice our children for. And they are not God, but we sometimes act like they are. And so, you know, right now, I really believe that this is a crisis in the Christian church. As Mike and I say, the cross and the gun give you two very different versions of power. And one of them says, I'm willing to die. And the other one says, I'm willing to kill. And it becomes really impossible to reconcile this idea that we're to love our enemies while simultaneously preparing to kill them. The gun and the cross, or we might even say the sword, are offering us two different versions of power. We like reflecting on Peter when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And Peter still impulsively picks up his weapon. And in his case, it was a sword. And he tries to stand his ground. And he injures someone. He cuts a guy's ear off. And Jesus's response is so unmistakable and so important that he ends up scolding Peter and saying, no, put your sword away. And then he heals the man that Peter wounded and makes it really clear that this is about love, that we're not going to counter violence by emulating it. And of course, Jesus models that all the way to the very end when he dies forgiving those who are executing him. This goes to the very heart of the gospel. And the early Christians said when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one of us who would dare call ourselves Christian. If ever there was a case to use violence to try to protect the innocent, Peter had the strongest case in the world. And so this is why, you know, I, we think it's a spiritual crisis. I want to, you know, just say briefly, like what you, you asked me to talk a little bit about the cost. And this is what it's costing us. When Mike and I wrote Beating Guns, the death toll was 90 lives a day. And we had to change that statistic as we were writing our manuscript to 100 lives every day. Now that number is even higher, 120 lives a day that are being lost to guns. Every single one of those is a child of God made in the image of God. So it's now some 40,000 lives every single year that are being lost. In my lifetime, I'll just throw it out there, y'all. I'm 47 years old. And in my lifetime, we've lost more lives to guns domestically than in all of the casualties of all of America's wars throughout history. In the pandemic, just the last few years, guns became the number one cause of death of American children, more than cancer, more than car accidents. And that's why we insist that we cannot say that we are pro-life and ignore gun violence, the number one cause of death of our kids. So just to lay a few other things out there, that show it doesn't have to be this way. In America, we've got this unmatched infatuation with guns. We have more guns than people, even though, check this out, two-thirds of Americans are unarmed, live choose to live without guns, and yet we've got more guns than people. We have a very small group of people, 3%, that own almost half of the guns, an average of some 20 guns per person. Mike and I wrote about one guy out there in Colorado that has 4,000 guns. 
And of course, he got robbed. One of his own family members, I think, drove a car into his building to steal his gun. I mean, we have a problem, right? It's an addiction. It's a form of idolatry. It's a sickness. And just as an alcoholic doesn't say, I need more whiskey to solve my drinking problem, more guns are not going to solve our gun problem. Where there are more guns, there are more gun deaths. That's it, right? And there are more suicides. It's important that over half of our gun deaths are suicides. Many of them, I'm sure, as Kelly will point out, are, are veterans. But guns are, are important because the access to a gun makes suicide all the more effective when someone's wanting to take their life. When someone tries to take their life with a gun, almost always they succeed. Nine out of 10 times or they end up taking their life. But when they use another method, poison or you know any other thing it's upwards of 90 percent of them survive and they get a second chance and most of them do not die by suicide they're able to get help or treatment or rethink the crisis that they're in so whether it's suicide or the love you know of our young people all of this doesn't have to be this way now there's folks that say this is not a gun problem it's a heart problem and what mike and i I say in beating guns is it can be both, right? God can heal the heart problem, but we need to address the gun problem. As Martin Luther King said, a law can't make you love me, but it can make it harder for you to kill me. And I'd suggest that should be our goal, making it harder for people to kill other folks. And right now we're making it really, really easy. I think I'll stop, but I have a handful of ideas if we want to get really practical of just like beginning to brainstorm, you know, what some of those policies might look like, but I'll stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. Just give us one, one quick analysis, if you can, Shane. I've heard you say, I've heard you talk about this in, in the form of an idolatry. You, you just did it at the beginning of your, of your thoughts here. Help us make sense of what seems to not just be an American fixation on guns, but there seems to be an American Christian fixation on guns as well. And I wonder how you're observing that and what, what you might say to us about that. Well, it does reveal, I think, a deep hole in our theology because many of the same people that said, we don't need masks because God's going to protect us still feel like they need an AR-15. <laughs> and so there's this kind of paradox. But I think it has everything to do with fear, and especially of folks that you would think would stand on the promise that perfect love casteth out fear, that even if they kill us, we're going to rise from the dead. Like we have nothing to be fearful of. And yet this has everything to do, I think, with fear. I mean, there's also an idea that we're going to need to protect our family. And yet when you look at the data, you see that a gun is much more likely to kill someone that you love either through suicide or accident, than it is to actually be used to defend your family. So we, we've created a narrative that actually doesn't match the data. And, and this, is, this is what's really disturbing though, Jer, is that when we were researching for beating guns, we found that the highest gun-owning demographic in America is Christians. Christians, almost half of Christians own guns, whereas two-thirds of Americans live without guns. So we are arming ourselves at a higher rate than the general population. The folks worshiping the Prince of Peace are the ones that are packing heat. Oof. 
questions. Thanks, Shay. We'll come back because there's, I mean, I think it seems clear to many of us on the call that change will actually require Capitol Hill finding some agency. And I am curious about your perspective on what it means for followers of Jesus to engage in some political ag, to do the level of organizing that, say, the NRA is capable of, to actually apply some pressure to grow some agency on Capitol Hill to, to make some change on all this. We'll come back to you, Mike, from Raw Tools. You probably agree with the notion that 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 change actually has to take place in Capitol Hill. And I've heard you say, and we're not going to wait for that. There's stuff for us to do here and now as individuals and as congregations. And I think that lies behind some of the essence of raw tools. So bring us into that story, if you would. But before you do, give us a little bit of you know, your, your journey into this conversation. How did gun violence and being a part of the change capture your imagination? Yeah, thanks for pulling us all together. This is a, a great room to be in with you all. Um, 10 years ago with Sandy Hook. Raw Tools started two years after that. At that time, my wife was a primary school teacher and the same number of kids who died at Sandy Hook were the same number of kids who were in her class that day. So it was a catalyzing event for for myself and my wife and others that we had been talking about this idea of turning guns into garden tools. We didn't know how to do it. So we learned how to blacksmith. We met a friend who grew up as a blacksmith and was so excited to teach us how to do it. And one of the biggest benefits of going to his shop in Eastern Colorado, not not just a, a mile or two from where that man owns 4,000 guns, we made a garden tool out of a section of a gun barrel in an afternoon. And it was in our first try together. And what that what that told us is that this is accessible, that this is something that people can participate in. And the idea for, or this the organization of Raw Tools exists because there were artists, prophets before us who turned weapons of war and guns into art sculptures and other lovely things, things that became statues commemorating those lost to war, to gun violence. And that that really cultivated this space for Raw Tools to exist. And so coming out of that, the experience of seeing Sandy Hook after Columbine, Columbine was kind of a thing that I was in high school at the time that happened. And it felt so rare at that time, like no way this can happen again. But Columbine kind of was the younger echo. The victims were so much younger and so much more poignant. Of course, we thought something would happen then, but nothing nothing really happened. A lot of organizations started, a lot of great advocacy organizations. And so Raw Tools doesn't look toward advocacy so much, but we want to engage communities in the act of turning a gun into a garden tool, but do it from a survivor-centered lens. So in our book, we talk about a wonderful woman named Charletta Evans who lost her three-year-old son to a random drive-by shooting. Kids got the gun that they knew was not stored safely by a parent of one of their friends and drove by to impress some local gangs and ended up killing this three-year-old. They didn't intend to do it, but they were kids themselves, 16, 17 years old, sentenced to life in prison. And Charlotta Evans advocated for their their release. And they some of them have been released because they were sentenced as juveniles. And so her story of transformation and forgiveness and the the access to restorative tools that churches don't access enough and put to use in our neighborhoods to help build community and recognize resources and what's available to help hold up the pillars that need to stand so we don't get thrown into that access of guns and thinking that they're a viable solution to the problems in our life, whether that's a problem with the neighbor or a problem within ourselves. So where we point that gun matters. And as Shane talked about, a huge portion of that is suicide. So all of our 
work. We kind of focus on three programs, turning guns to garden tools, training for war no more, which is the act of kind of introducing people to nonviolence 101. If I don't have a gun, how do I feel safe? And I think that's kind of the the crux of why people fall into the fear of needing to get that gun. And when they have the gun, they don't imagine so much the other possible solutions to conflict in their life, whether that's someone coming into their house or walking down the street and bumping shoulders and someone taking it the wrong way. There's so many different ways we get into conflict and we need to be better at how to deal with that. And the last one is Vine and Fig. How do we look at the systems that influence and encourage violence as viable solutions to conflict and flip them around, especially from a Christian perspective? And I think the the passage in Micah and Isaiah tells us how to do that. And turning our, our guns into garden tools, our swords into plowshares, forces us to learn and discipline ourselves in the alternative practices that make for peace. Some of that involves forgiveness. Some of that involves making sure we have access to healthcare, basic necessities, shelter, food. That's what it means to be under a vine and fig tree in fear of no other. There had to be systemic change somewhere for us to be able to welcome each other with open arms instead of bearing arms. And so the way we do that is invite churches. We've, we travel across the country, turning guns to garden tools, community organizations, and invite the voices of those who've been impacted by, by gun violence to be centered at those events, all while returning a donated gun from the community into a garden tool. And then we end those events around the anvil, first inviting those who shared. And this happened with Shane and I in, in Philly the first time we did this. There were three mothers. One happened to be Muslim, one Jewish, and one Christian. And the last mother, they all kind of, it didn't feel as planned so much, but they gravitated towards the anvil and they took the hammer and they beat on the gun that we were working with, and there weren't enough Kleenexes in the, in the parking lot to go around. But the last mother hit that gun barrel. We always talk, you know, you hit the, you strike while the iron's hot. We've all heard that phrase. Well, it's a blacksmithing phrase that if you hit while that iron is cold, it'll crack. Well, this mother was carrying so much weight from her son being lost 25 years prior. And when she picked up this hammer, she kept going. It didn't matter if that gun barrel turned cool and we need to put it back in the forge. But every time she hit, the anvil. She said, this is for my son. And by the time she was done hitting the weight of the hammer, almost pulled her to the ground. She just couldn't lift it anymore to hit it. And we've seen that time and time again, when we invite people to the anvil, that not only is the act of blacksmithing very provocative and interesting to go watch. If you pass it like at a festival or something, you want to go take a peek, what are they making? What are they doing? But when you add this uh, combination of people who've been harmed by gun violence, and they get to literally beat the hell out of something, something that has brought hell to their life, something that they actively have to escape every day when they wake up. But at the same time, they're not just doing it to destroy it. They're actively making it into something that will cultivate life. And I think that's the prophetic imagination that we need to lean into as we turn these guns into garden tools. We're not just doing buybacks to get guns off the streets. We're doing buybacks to center survivors so that the people who are accompanying cars through the buybacks thank the, those in the cars because they've lost loved ones or the people volunteering at the saws have lost loved ones. And part of the healing is helping cut up that firearm, but then also holding events where we get to move from the weary to the hope and turn that gun barrel into a garden tool and invite the community to be a part of it. Because I think what we get sucked into that numbness that you talked about is this new cycle just turns over so fast. And, you know, with Buffalo and Uvalde, and Milwaukee, all of that happened within weeks of each other. And it was hard to sit in that. Even here with Club Q in Colorado Springs, where I'm at, you know, all that's attention's gone. But what do you do when the trial starts up? 
in a few weeks here. And all of that trauma is brought back together. Do we have the resources and grief processing spaces for people to have a safe space to yell and scream and cry and weep together so that we can hold all of this grief in healthy ways so that we don't also get into this victim offender cycle that really the industry of guns wants to pull us into. There's a reason gun industry does so well after mass shootings, like in Bend, Oregon. There's a reason it does so well in elected officials who are assumed to start pulling guns off the streets. So there's a lot that the Christian imagination can it can do in this conversation, but also pull us into action that we need to keep communicating with our legislators. But when we need something to do with our hands, turning a gun into a garden tool is a part of it. You know, giving up your firearm because the the cost of owning it no longer outweighs the cost of losing more kids. And, you know, mass shootings are less than 2% of gun violence in America. We lose 10 to 15 kids under the age of 18 every single day as a part of that 120. So it's like every single day, another school shooting is happening. It's just spread out, spread across this country. So when we can recognize that this keeps going, that's what these events help doing is it, it tells us the trauma that is in our community and the ripple effects. So many pastors have told us that I didn't know so many people in my congregation were affected by gun violence until we kind of did that altar call to the anvil to pick up the hammer if you've been affected. And then people just come out of the crowd that even their closest friends didn't, didn't know. And so it's, it's an awakening that this affects more of us than we really know. Studies have been recently done that they used to say a suicide affects six people, but recently new studies are saying it, a suicide affects 110 when you widen those ripples out to workplace, family space, school space, the third space, your hobby space. But another way to think about that is that there are 110 people that care about you, that want you to have a full and fulfilling life. And so I think we need to lean into the hope that that brings, but we can carry we can carry that hope and grief at the same time. But the people who are carrying the grief, they need some help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike, I, I, I had an awakening moment at an anvil with you and Shane at a dude ranch of all places in Vail, Colorado. And I, fittingly, the name of that conference was Simply Jesus. And we were turning an AR-15 into a garden tool. And I didn't realize, I, I think my naivety was that everybody in the area would have loved to have been a part of that when in fact, many of the people at that conference were probably very troubled by what it was that we were doing at the anvil. I want to hold that intention with my experience. I have a video of me hammering on this AR-15 and like recognizing that that was, that was like the, an awakening moment for me in terms of my own personal sorrow and grief over the, the moment when I was 13, but also for this thing that is killing people. And so I just can't believe how individually transformative this is. Take us from the micro to a bit of the macro in terms of what does this do? What is, how is Raw Tools partnering with congregations? And what are you seeing happen with congregations? And then continue to grow a bit more macro with us. How is this not only awakening the moral imagination? But how is it beginning to build momentum towards some change? Yeah, one of the things we did during the pandemic since we couldn't meet is we developed a process that was approved by the ATF, the federal regulation around gun laws, that if you bring a gun to us and we cut it up while, while it's there, no legal transfer of ownership happens. 
So then we can we can invite a lot of people into that accessible space. And one of the beautiful things, actually, there's a pastor I saw in the chat or Q&A that was a part of this right after COVID, actually during this Lenten season, was the mass shooting at the King Supers in Boulder, Colorado. And their church had already set up action circles to respond to social justice harms or issues within their community, or really just, hey, let's dream of what we can do next as a church together. So they had a practice of of sharing ideas together. And then when the mass shooting happened down the street from their church and right across the street from Boulder Mennonite Church, I'm a Mennonite, so that we had planned a response, a safe space. There was a prayer space, and then there was an anvil space, which was across the street from this King Supers, and people could could come and interact at all ages. There were things for kids to do. But one of the people who came was Pastor Reverend Nicola Marsh up the street from Community UCC in Boulder. And she said, I want my church to do a buyback. And so we planned it. And from there, we did another one in Longmont with Reverend Sarah Verasco. And then after that, the cities of Boulder and Denver gave us over $100,000 in gift cards to do eight buybacks in there. And then the Denver Broncos got on and started doing that. And all of these buybacks were held at faith spaces, but they're not just buybacks getting guns off the street. They're also places while the buyback is happening and we're cutting up guns, we're training clergy and community leaders how to cut up firearms so that when a buyback isn't happening and they're in relationship with people who are questioning whether they want to own a gun or not. And often some of these people are involved in gang initiated or street violence places. So they'll have youth who want to get rid of their guns. They want to get out of the gangs but they need someone they can trust. And so one of these people said, hey, you know, get it to this buyback, we'll cut it up. He didn't come to the buyback, but his grandma brought his guns. And another time they just, they met with other youth peers, the word was spreading, and they've cut up six guns just in the last few months of youth who are wanting to get out of these cycles of violence. And so you see this kind of small church power get displayed in bigger spaces. And we're continuing to work with Guns to Gardens Metro Denver who are planning buybacks but also events where we can turn those guns into garden tools because there's also an impact that when you take an ignored neighborhood and make a green space like a park or a community garden, violence of all kinds drops 20 to 30%, sometimes more. So the fact that you just pay attention to people significantly, significantly increases their life expectancy. There's radical but very simple things that we can do. It's very simple to cut up a gun, but it can feel intimidating to get into that process. And that's okay. We're all at different places on that. So we've started holding these training spaces. We partner with things like the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, who does action circles similar to what the Boulder Church did, you know, five different meetings to get people and their churches to be safe surrender sites, whether it's a buyback or not. Just, hey, we're having a day where we're going to get, we're going to have a saw ready to cut up unwanted guns. And those guns are going to be made into garden tools. We partnered with a small, I'll end here, a small suburb of Colorado Springs, Manitou Springs, to cut up their disabled weapons. And what we could make into garden tools, we sold to support our organization, but not all the parts of a gun can make a garden tool, but it can make art. And so we put all these broken up pieces, disabled pieces of guns on a table at a youth maker space, and youth just started making all kinds of things out of it. And those were sold to support a local restorative justice practices and facilitation space in the area. So there are ways we can connect to the inter- intersections of gun violence, like suicide, domestic violence, street violence, safe storage, police violence, all of these things need different answers. And that's what's so complicated about gun violence is that there's it, it manifests in different spaces. So for those of us who are listening in, I'm, I'm hoping, 
I'm hoping that our imaginations are being awakened right now. For those of us who have sat and go, I've made the calls to the politicians. I've sent up my thoughts and prayers. I've posted on socials. I don't know what else I can do. Like there is an organization called Raw Tools that's saying you can actually decommission your gun and we can work with you to turn it into a garden tool. And then we can actually begin to mobilize youth to create art out of weapons. We can create green spaces in our cities. So for those of you in particular who are listening in from a congregational lens, you're a congregational leader, you're an elder, you're a staff person, you're a pastor in a congregation. This is the type of action that we think is necessary now to live as the hopeful alternative in our cities. Imagine becoming a gun decommissioning site where this kind of work can happen, but not as an isolated pinnacle in your city, but in collaboration with the local police department, because they have to turn over guns used for suicide back to the families. That's traumatic. So there's ways that you can get in touch with local PD and other organizations in your cities that are working on creating green spaces, requiring garden tools, mobilizing youth. There's all sorts of things that we can be doing very, very practically in creative ways to make change. Um, I'm gonna put a post in the comment section now that it's working. We're having part two of this conversation for anybody who is interested in learning what it means to become a gun decommissioning site. That post is in our comment thread right now. Get into it and RSVP for that and for your leader, for your pastor, for your elders, for whoever it is, be a part of this conversation that's going to happen on April 11th. And we'll get more into that here in a second with Amy. Woo, settle down. Thanks, Mike. You got me hot and bothered. Kelly, coming to you. We're talking micro. So this stuff happens at a, at a micro level. It grows to a macro organizational change, citywide change, eventually maybe national change. And this is one thread in, in that level of change. You are an individual. I've known you for lots of years, and I know you to have a very healthy relationship with guns. You're an individual who has made a unique decision to decommission your AR-15 assault rifle. And so I want to turn to you and stay micro for a moment. Let's talk about you as an individual. Can you start by just maybe introducing yourself a little bit in terms of what shaped your relationship with guns to begin with? And then, and then move us all the way to the moment when you decided to purchase an AR-15. What was that like? Yeah, thanks, Chair. You're right. I am an individual, a solidly mediocre individual, I would say. So I grew up in a house with no guns, but my dad was a veteran. And so very comfortable around them, shot them at different times, obviously a pro-military household and a very Christian household as well. And over time, you know, I participated in a number of different hunting activities and kind of that was my gateway into a became interested in doing different hunting sports and then participated with my dad in some veteran activities over the years and at a certain point got the fortunate opportunity another good friend of mine started an organization and I was on the board where we just took veterans to do different activities in the outdoors but a lot of it centered around hunting and fishing. And it was a great organization there and it was really rewarding work and important work. And so through that, I, I began to, you know, acquire guns as I started hunting more regularly. And I actually, at one of our events, entered a raffle, you know, paid the $100 or whatever it was 
And I actually won an AR-15. We auctioned them off as fundraising. And at the time, I didn't even think about it, but it was probably our most successful way to fundraise is to do these raffles where people you know, enter either a bidding contest or just kind of a, a random contest. So I actually won my AR-15. It's been probably 10 years ago now at this event and was excited and proud about it with the intent of just using it recreationally, just target practice and things. And obviously uh, I'm, I am very careful with guns, control them, lock them up. And so, you know, didn't really think twice about it until I had kids. My oldest turned seven here just recently. And I think that moment And then every time a school shooting happened after that, I would have this little kind of voice in in the back of my head feeling a little bit, you know, personally responsible to do something. What, What is it that I can do? And so those thoughts, you know, just kind of progressed over time and it it was a slow journey and, and one, you know, that I, I think probably a lot of people can relate to. It wasn't some aha moment or or anything like that. But there became, you know, to become this conflict internally. And it was probably in, you know, three or four years ago where I felt like I was in any conversation where an AR-15 came up, I was having to take a a stance and clarify why I owned this particular gun. With certain people that are very into guns, it was a stance to clarify, you know, that I don't believe this is some inalienable right and that I do think there needs to be, you know, more regulation and and things around that. I, I felt like I had to defend almost like the yeah, but. And then on the other hand, people that were really anti-gun and wanted to see more gun control I had to also clarify, well, just because I own this doesn't mean that you should lump me in, you know, with these other people. And it's interesting. I'm not afraid of conflict. I actually lean into conflict quite a bit. But what it did is this conflict really created this tension within me that made it clear I needed to choose to do something. I, I couldn't just stay in this tension forever. And so that's really you know, what drove me to the point that I reached a couple of years ago in, in deciding what to do there. So Kelly, I just think it actually is helpful to hear someone like you express the, like the journey itself. You know, it's not, it wasn't an aha moment, get rid of my AR-15. It was like just these pinches along the way that caused you to be like, I don't know what I think about being a guy who owns an assault rifle anymore. So you you get to a place where clearly you're like, I don't think it is good for me to own this. Tell us about arriving to to that decision. And then how did you know what to do? I mean, nobody knows how to get, most of us would just resell the AR-15. You're up a, you're up a thousand bucks. Great. Good for you. Someone else owns the, 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 you didn't do it that way. So how did you find a gun decommissioning site? Yeah. Well, it's exactly right. So I reached a point a couple of years ago and I I made two choices. One is I made a personal decision 
not to own any weapon for self-defense. And I didn't at that point anyway, so I I didn't have a gun for self-defense, but I, I made a decision to not do that. And then I made a decision to decommission or, or excuse me, get, get rid of this AR-15. And I really, at first, I was just going to give it to a veteran or, you know, do something, kind of give it back to the organization that I was a part of. But the more that I wrestled with it and the more that I talked to a couple different people, including you, I just, nobody was saying that was not a good thing to do, but it was something within me that wanted to take it out of commission, whatever that meant, but take it out of circulation, if you will. And it was some of those suicide stats that Shane mentioned at the beginning is why I didn't want to take the chance of giving it into the hands of somebody that could use it for harm against themselves, quite frankly. And so I really wrestled with what to do. And, you know, I, I sat on that decision kind of unsure for about a year. And I'll be honest, I got tempted a few times to sell it and take that. I could have gotten easily 2000 bucks for my gun. And I got a lot of expensive hobbies. I could have put that to use, but I, I just felt this conviction to do something meaningful, not for everybody else, but just for myself. And so you know, it was through a a conversation that I had with you in 2021 that really alerted me to raw tools. And so I checked it out and was really inspired by the organization's story and their mission. And, you know, I really admired it. And so I reached out and got connected with a group here in Portland, a church that had just recently become a decommissioning site. And I think I was their second gun that they had ever decommissioned. And the guy that did it had never seen an AR-15. So the one that he had done before was an old family heirloom gun, didn't even work. And so that it was a, it was interesting. I am not a symbolic person, I would say, by nature. And I didn't want to do this for symbolism as much as I wanted to do it just to take this gun out. And yet there was a very strong symbolic moment that happened for me when I did that. And, and it was it was moving for me and it was moving for the, the person that helped me do it as well. I was shocked because he actually let me do the saw, you know, chop the, chop the gun. And it, it was, it was a cool move. That's amazing. Hey, last, last thing, Kelly, for now, it, it changed something in you. And I, I wonder if you can try to take a stab at like, what is it changing in you? Yeah, I think that, again, I think it's a journey. And so I still am on this journey. I still, you know, just full transparency, I still own guns. I'm still a hunter. I still am in this world and I'm around a lot of people, friends, family, work networks, things like that, that are very active participants in the gun culture of the United States. And I think where I am at on this journey is I'm learning how to participate in conversations from a personal perspective that just raises visibility to alternatives, which I think, you know, is the purpose of tonight. But my, you know, my personal journey is just getting comfortable in 
how do I talk about this? How do I, you know, think about this in a way that shares my story, not as a way to boast in anything I've done or say I've arrived at a certain conclusion, but to open people's eyes around, you know, the statistics that were shared earlier and the impacts that it has. And also, you know, the, it's funny, I wrote in some notes prepping for this, the word idol. Like I, one of my reasons to do this was for myself to make sure that I didn't have an idol of freedom or of safety and figuring out how to use this to talk about that has been really important for me and and something I'm still growing in and, and learning how to do, but has probably been the most tangible thing that's come out of it so far. That's amazing. Can I thank you for, for sharing this, you know, you, I feel like you have a healthy relationship with guns and this is a, this is a big, it's a big thing that you did. And I love that it's changing you. And I, I also can't wait to watch how it does inform your daughter's perspective on weapons and violence and, and this or that. So keep on with the journey. We'll, we'll be excited to hear how it continues. Amy, I want to come to you. Here you are at two as an individual, clearly, but as a pastor with some institutional influence there. You're, you lead a congregation in central Oregon, which is one of the most heavily saturated spaces of white militias and therefore guns in the country. And you are on your way alongside your team and congregation of becoming a gun decommissioning site. Tell us how Antioch got involved in this story and then and it, help us understand the journey as it's unfolding, because I don't imagine it's just been a decision. I imagine it's been a process. So will you invite us into that? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, everyone. This is just so inspiring and amazing. Thankful for y'all. Yeah. So it's interesting in this, this world we live in with the news cycle and the social media cycle where things like peak and then disappear and then peak and then disappear. And someone said there's always a spike after a mass shooting and I live in that space with a, a justice-minded church where we are working with God towards the reconciliation of all things slow and steady. And it's just been a beautiful process to lead my congregation and having a, a mission statement of the reconciliation of all things gives us a lot of broom. All things means all things. So we get to engage and talk about immigration and Black Lives Matter and gun violence and occupy this, what feels like a unique evangelical space where we're sort of in the middle. We're talking about systemic change and we're talking about individual change and holding both of those together. As Jer mentioned, we did have our sort of first quasi-mass shooting in Central Oregon this past summer. Didn't count as a mass shooting because only two people lost their lives before the shooter took his own life. But it was definitely something that sort of thrust our community into this conversation. And it was pretty striking that the day after the shooting, there was a vigil held at a local park. And we're a good-sized city. And all of the churches or most of the churches in town came together to hold this vigil as a community. And it was really inspiring to think about moving forward, not just our church, Antioch, but the community of Central Oregon to engage in this conversation. So that was definitely a starting point for us. We as a church met with Mike and Jared and had a conversation just to learn more about raw tools and what that can look like. We brought in a couple of speakers to Antioch, trying to 
engage with our congregation, whether they're conservative or liberal, and have those kind of open conversations where gun owners and pacifists can get together. Our most recent event, we had our local Mennonite church with us, along with some veterans, quite a few hunters, certainly a lot of gun owners, and we were able to engage and talk as a greater body about what this means for our country, for our community. So it's it, we're, we're in the process. And like I said, trying to hold steady and let people learn and grow in their understanding and engage with the conversation and ask questions and keep moving forward. So it's pretty exciting to be a part of this conversation, to be getting to know Mike and Wondering how that's going to look like for Antioch to further our relationship with Raw Tools. Yeah, thanks, Amy. I I, I think I, I think your story is really really helpful for many of us who are in churches and want to see something like this happen with our churches, because we're also recognizing this this has to be a process. To to Shane's point earlier, this is a spiritual sickness. I would say it's a theological crisis that we actually prefer a God who's a genocidal warrior who endorses the use of our violence against people who aren't like us for our benefit. Like there's a full-on theological foundation that underlies this that I'm watching you guys navigate slowly, slowly in a way that isn't causing you to lose folk, but it's causing folk to lean in toward one another. You know, so for those of you who are listening in, I'm hoping that Amy's going to be with us on the 11th. This is my preemptive close, I hope. Where these are the types of questions that I, this is why I want her to be with us on the 11th, because I want us to get in a room together and ask her questions about like the slow decisions that they've made along the way to transform the soul of a congregation to be ready to become a, a gun decommissioning site that isn't just an end unto itself, but is a part of a larger conversation and movement in our area and our region. So, can you just really briefly, Amy? Hit on that. For you, becoming a gun decommissioning site is not the end. It's a step in a larger journey. Talk to us a little bit more about what you mean. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the whole guns to garden tools and just this journey that God has had us on as Antioch. We were a mobile church for a really long time and ended up in a building right across the street from a high school. And we share a parking lot with the Salvation Army and just over the last few years, the relationships that have been, that have been growing on our literal piece of land in our community have just been beautiful. And our biggest project that we are in the process of working on is a community garden that is set to get started this spring. So it just feels like such a beautiful timing to be working on our garden in the midst of starting to partner with Raw Tools and the Guns to Garden Tools. It is a beautiful step in the journey that will keep moving. This community garden will be a place for our whole neighborhood, for Salvation Army, for our church, and then moving towards becoming a gun decommissioning site. It just it just feels like the pieces are coming together on on this journey. I'm excited. It's incredible. And it's incredible to think too about the relationship between say, Antioch in local PD. And, you know, again, the, the idea of the guns that they're accumulating, they have a couple of choices to make, one of which is to potentially resell them to pad their budget, or they could be in partnership with faith communities that are gun decommissioning sites to get some of these guns off the street. They're, they're just unique collaborations that can begin to happen in our context. So on April 11th, 
We're hoping that Amy's going to be with us. Mike will be with us. Rev. Deanna Hollis will be with us, who is with the Presbyterian Peace Circles, who will be offering an invitation into a cohort approach to understanding what it means to actually become this. So join us on the 11th for, for more on that. Shane, I want to come back to you because policy does actually matter. And there's some things that we can be, that we need to be thinking about in addition to just congressional calls. So talk to us about policy, then I'm going to put some resources and invitations in front of us, and we're going to call it a night for now. Shane, take us away. Well, I mean, just quickly, I I have some serious Anabaptist and anarchistic tendencies, just to be fully transparent. So, and Mike and I love the Isaiah and Micah verses because they they aren't waiting on politicians. It's the people of God that say, we're done. And I think in many senses, that's how social change happens from the bottom up, not the top down. But we need to use every tool in our toolbox, you know, and and I think technology can play a role. I mean, just think, you know, a little bit about automobiles, right? They're not designed to be deadly, but they can be really dangerous. So we've done a lot of things with technology, airbags and seatbelts and all these different things. I think with guns, we can have fingerprint technology, like we operate some of our cell phones, and that would make it a little bit harder, you know, to have a stolen gun or for a kid to find it to operate it if the fingerprint was a part of what, you know, like a smart gun technology. So there's things like that. But I also think that laws can save lives. And and the the great thing is a majority of gun owners agree that we need some common sense changes. And then I just throw this out, like not as an anecdote, but just as a brainstorm. You know, I think it's good to leave thinking like, what can we agree on? And most gun owners agree on some of these changes. So things like one of the laws we're going for here in, in Pennsylvania is called one handgun a month. And it would allow one person to only purchase 12 handguns. This is just handguns in a year. You'd go 12 handguns per person. That's just a very sensible limit. Who needs more than 12 handguns? I'll tell you, someone who's making money probably off of selling handguns. So why don't we have laws like that? They keep getting blocked by a really extremist group of gun extremists and enthusiasts that don't represent a majority of gun owners. Things like a limit to how many rounds a gun could shoot. So say, let's say 10 rounds without reloading, like our hunter friends in Pennsylvania say, you don't need more than 10 rounds to shoot a deer. So why would we have guns that are designed for one purpose, like the AR-15, to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible? And that's exactly what they keep getting used for, right? I think there's things like raising the minimum age, like... um, We know a disproportionate amount of gun violence happens between 16 and 20 years old. So, you know, we don't trust teenagers. You can't rent a car or buy a beer, but you can own an AR-15, right? So let's just think about, let's think about domestic abusers having access to guns because we know that's like kind of an indicator that if you're hurting your own family, you might be likely to hurt someone else. Red flag laws, if someone's a danger to themselves or to others, that people could flag that and say, you know, let's just check on them and make sure, you know. So all of these, you know, again, just to kind of get us going and say, laws aren't going to change everything. You know, people that say people will still hurt each other. They are right. Like if we got rid of every gun, Folks would still find a way to use a car as a weapon or a pressure cooker, like in the Boston Marathon, to turn it into a bomb. But the fact is that right now, where America is unique is that, you know, every country in the world has folks that are 
prone to violence or struggling with their mental health or they're racist and want to carry out their, their ideology. But what's unique about America is we're allowing sinful people to have access to almost limitless power to destroy life. And that's why well-regulated was written into the second. Ooh, common sense microdose us in the direction of common sense here. That's, that's super, super insightful, Shane. Thanks. Friends, Kelly, Amy, Mike, Shane, riveting evening, super, super, super practical conversations here. We're moved by the problem. We get to be the hopeful solution because we follow an enemy-loving, nonviolent, cross-wearing God who invites us to live, love, and lead likewise. And so we should be the people to put on the hopeful alternative. It's time for us to get in the game. And this has been a really, really insightful and helpful catalyst in that direction. There's a couple of things that I wanted to draw your attention to. Number one, the session on April 11th, get yourselves and get your faith leaders into that conversation. Mike Martin, Reverend Deanna Hollis with Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, Hopefully our very own Amy Kasari talking to us about the practicalities, the obstacles and opportunities of becoming a Gandhi commissioning site and how that wraps us into the infrastructure of our community. That's what we're going to be doing. It's April 11th. It's 9 a.m. Get your people involved in that conversation and let's start connecting the dots, forming some coalition and some movement around this. We're late to the game, but but it's good that we're in it. So that's number one. Number two, Shane, talk really briefly about what's happening in Philly tomorrow and how we can tune. We, we don't always think of Dr. King as a victim of gun violence, but he was. And so tomorrow is the anniversary of his assassination. It's 55 years since his death. And he was such a champion of nonviolence. He was also a gun owner that rethought his relationship with guns and decided we're not going to fight violence on its own terms. And so what we're doing is chopping up a gun similar to the one that killed Dr. King during the hour that he was killed 55 years ago. We're reading Dr. King quotes from faith leaders of many different faiths around the city of Philadelphia. It's an interfaith event. And we're tolling the bell 55 times of the Philadelphia Cathedral. So it'll be live streamed and we're, we're, we hope y'all can join us and it's going to be a powerful night. So find that on the raw or the on Red Letter Christian socials. Watch, watch for that. I want to encourage you to make sure that you're following along with Rock Tools, Red Letter Christians, Global Immersion. This conversation is just going to continue to build momentum. And, and we want you to be a part of that. Tomorrow morning, all of you who have registered for this are going to receive a follow-up email with recording to this. Use it. Host viewing parties, get your people into living rooms, watch this together, talk about it, disagree in ways that create lean in and have good food as you're doing it as we move in, a, in the direction of a more nonviolent tomorrow. You'll also have all links to the resources mentioned into the, in this conversation, books, documentaries, talks, invitations to April 11. All of that stuff's going to be quick linked in that email for you. Friends, we've listened and I think the Spirit of God roams untamed in moments like this to propel us each into action, internal and external. I think the Spirit usually invites us to remember that we're beloved, and so is everyone else. And now go give your life away to put it all on display. And so there's a step. You're provoked. There's something going on with you. Turn the information into transformation by accepting the invitation and taking a step. And we look forward to seeing many of you on the 11th. Take care for now, friends. Thanks for being with us.